This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guests today are Adam Grant and Cade Massey, who lead Wharton's People Analytics Initiative. Gentlemen, welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Kate, we, when we spoke last year about people analytics, that was just before your conference, and you have another conference coming up. Uh, and it seems to me that during this past year, that interest in people analytics has really gone up. Why is people analytics so hot? Well, I agree with you that it does seem to be blowing up a little bit. Um, it started, I feel like it started in technology more than any other industry, and then finance picked it up, and now we see it kind of everywhere. Um, my sense is that people appreciate that this is a very important function and yet hasn't been approached very, in a very sophisticated way in the past. And all of a sudden they realize you can use all these tools that we're accustomed to using in marketing or finance. We can use them for hiring people and compensating people. And what's better than that, given how, how um, important those things are to an organization? So it's the, it's the potential, people seeing the potential of this that's making it popular. Uh, Adam, what are your thoughts on why it's becoming so popular? Yeah, I, I didn't even know it existed until uh, Kate and I ended up working with Google about five years ago, and they'd built this whole people analytics team um, that was a mix of traditional IHR folks, consultants, engineers, and, and folks like us who study organizational behavior. And it was amazing that they were able to take questions that used to be answered based on intuition and actually run experiments and gather data to figure out what were the right choices to make. And you know, I think that Google's gotten a, a ton of press for all the great work they've done in this area. And other leaders have started thinking, why aren't we doing this? Shouldn't we be making all of our important decisions based on evidence, too? Yeah, should we just be giving Laszlo Bach credit here? Because he's been like an evangelist for this. Surprisingly, he's been out there. He's the head of HR at Google. And he's always been very willing to say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what you should be doing. Kind of uncharacteristic for someone to say that essentially to his competitors. So one of the things I find very interesting about people analytics is, as, as you said, Alan, how a lot of decisions, HR decisions that used to be based on intuition are now sort of migrating over into data-driven decisions. So can you give me some examples of, say, if you take hiring as the first uh, point of engagement between a company and an employee, how is hiring changing because of people analytics? So uh, people are very interested now in can we, can we identify from objective measures who's going to work well in our firm. So rather than having to bring them in here and talk to them in person, can we grab you know, their, their GPA in college and where they went to school and who they worked for and predict somehow from these inputs how they're going to be? If you could, That'd be great, right? Because you save a lot of time. You can process all these information, all these applications, real efficiently. So that's pretty promising. Or at least that has a lot of appeal. Now, there's more appeal to, to it than substance right now because it's really hard to do. But there, that would be great if you can pull it off, and it would, it would, it would be great. Um, any investment you can make in making that happen is going to have high returns. But it's still new, so there's no, there, there's no silver bullets. Um, but people are drawn to it because it could be great if it happens. So based on the evidence, does it matter where you went to school? <laughs> wow, this is like a question that people with high school age kids are forever asking, right? They're like, 
Does it matter if they go to Princeton versus the state school? What do you, is there good evidence on that? I don't know if there's good evidence on that right now. I, mean, I, think, I think it's a debate that continues to rage. Um, but my, my favorite research on this uh, is Caroline Hoxby's. And if I remember correctly, what she shows is that it's mostly selection effect. So that if you, you know, if you come out of an Ivy League school, um, you typically will end up with a higher income and more job opportunities. Uh, but all of the characteristics that led you there were visible before the university chose you. And it was essentially you know, bringing in an ambitious and talented group of students to begin with as opposed to something magical that happened in your four years. Um, that being said, um, we like to think that we're doing something of use. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> so, magi magical happens here at w Wharton MBA. Magical happens. Um, but, you know, the, the, what, I, what I like to say is that probably great schools provide an advantage through the network that people get to know, maybe through the training. But there's, it's kind of like stereotypes. There, there may be true differences in social categories between people, but people believe these differences are bigger than they actually are, and there's huge variation within the category. So there's huge variation in outcomes from people who come and go to Penn, and there's huge variations in outcomes from people who go to Penn State. And there's a lot more overlap between these two things than people think. So, so, so let's say the hiring step is over, and now you're on to the uh, next step of onboarding people. Mm. What can uh, people analytics do to improve the onboarding mm. process? So, you know, we need to be careful not just, you know, uh, laud Google at every turn, but they are an organization that has looked at this explicitly. And they did it in the best possible way. They ran experiments on let's onboard in this way and then manipulate an, a different group in a different way to see what actually makes a difference. So it's not just telling stories. We're actually doing science here to figure out what makes the most difference. And I don't, I don't know all the details of the study. This is something they've been doing for the last couple of years. But they recognized the onboarding process as kind of really important and completely underexplored. So they went out and ran an, an, uh, an experiment. Do you remember the details of this? There, there's one finding that jumps out at me, which is um, when they, they looked at all the things that make a difference in the first few days or first few weeks of your time at Google, um, probably the most critical thing to happen is just that you meet your manager on day one. And people are busy, right? Um, you may have a lot of direct reports. Um, it may be also, as a new hire, that you're being sent to a lot of different places. Um, but based on that evidence, they, they said, look, one of, one of our rules for onboarding is you've got to meet your manager on day one. Um, and that's such a critical part of building a bond between an employee and an employer. Um, it's not to say that we didn't know it was important for you to meet your manager, but I think all of us, right, myself included, really underestimated how much of an effect that would have on day one. And so I think that's, that's an example of the kind of thing we've learned from their work. Mm -hmm. Something else they talk about a little bit that seems wise is that a person's success at a company often depends heavily on who they work for. And yet who they work for is essentially completely outside their control. And so this isn't exactly onboarding, but it is early career, early stage consideration. If things aren't working out, you need to be wise about it and not just blame that person. And you probably want to see that person in more than one circumstance before you draw too strong a conclusion about it. This is just, they're both examples of being more systematic and scientific about evaluating your employees or trying to train your employees as opposed to the old school kind of would do this because this is what we've always done. So once you start working in the company, increasingly we find that uh, more and more of us are working in teams. Uh, and teams are very often geographically dispersed or very often across different countries, uh, but also across generations. So you have baby boomers and millennials sort of having to figure out how to work together. What can we learn through people analytics about the creation and construction of high-performance teams? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So um, an infinite number of things. And this is a, such a rich area. And I'm, I'm, Adam, I'm sure, has his favorite examples. One of the ones that I first I think about is recent work by Chris Chabri and his colleagues on um, Team IQ, essentially. And they do some really interesting stuff that looks at the productivity of teams um, as a function of their individual characteristics versus what they do collectively. And he finds that there is something, they seem to find something like team IQ that is different from the sum of the parts. It's not that if you put all the smart people together that they produce the smartest work. It's that they need to be people who understand how to work with each other and work as a part of a team. There's something unique about team level intelligence that's different from the sum of the individual level intelligence. And I, I think to build on that, there are probably ways that you can compose a team to enhance the likelihood right? that, that they'll be intelligent as a group. So one of the things I hear a lot is that diversity is good. And there's no question that we get a lot of value from diversity in terms of people bringing unique perspectives, thoughts, skills to the table. But when you look at personality research, there are some characteristics on which it's actually helpful to have similarity as opposed to variety. So um, if you look at the, the data, extroversion, introversion is the clearest trait where variety is useful. Um, your team of whole extroverts essentially never starts working on the task. <laughs> team of all introverts um, often forget to bond. And the data say that the most effective teams have a mix of the two. But don't necessarily stretch that into every other personality trait. Uh, if you look at a personality trait like agreeableness, for example, people who love social harmony, one of the worst things you can do is put them on a team with people who are extremely critical and skeptical. Um, because the disagreeable people are feeling like they have to walk on eggshells constantly. Meanwhile, the poor agreeable people, they have this, this catch-22 of, I can be really agreeable and act disagreeable like the disagreeable people and then hate myself afterward. Or, you know, I can be really agreeable and then, you know, it doesn't, doesn't quite gel. And so there it's actually helpful to have either similarity in personality or a consistent norm of how we're going to interact. And so I think you know, we have to be really more thoughtful about composition than we have been, have been in the past, probably. And one of the things that people analytics brings to that task in general is just the inclination to study it precisely and ideally to run experiments around it. So again, we're not just going to take conventional wisdom or we're not going to take, you know, um, something that's written by someone who used to run some teams. We're going to actually collect some data and run some experiments and figure, ask these questions and figure them out. Let's push a little bit further on the diversity area, uh, aspect. Uh, as you know, there's been a lot of some controversial news as well about, uh, say, women and high technology companies, for example. Uh, has People Analytics come, come up with any evidence that shows uh, you know, how gender roles and uh, even racial roles are, are related to performance? I just wish we had someone who'd done some writing on some gender issues. If only somebody... <laughs> Don't look at me. Um, Cheryl Sandberg is the brains behind that operation. Um, I, uh, I, I've learned a, a ton from working with, with Cheryl on gender issues, and um, she has a, a wonderful researcher, Marianne Cooper at Stanford, who's, um, who's collaborated with us on, on looking through what do did, what did the data really show. And I think the, probably the, the thing that I would say right now is um, there's a lot of academic research that hasn't been leveraged. Um, so we, we know a lot about how to design, for example, performance evaluations that actually lead people to judge contributions as opposed to the person behind them. Um, we know a lot about how to attract more female applicants in the high-tech world, for example. Um, turns out the recruiter that comes and shows up matters a lot. Um, our own Matthew Bidwell here at Wharton has shown this in the finance realm, that one of the reasons there are so few women in finance is that they don't apply. 
um, at very high rates, um, they actually have a slightly higher odds of getting hired because um, financial services organizations are really trying to solve this gender problem and bring in more women. But where they, they start to get discouraged is when a bunch of partners show up who are all men to recruit, they say, well, I'm never going to get this job. Why bother trying? And I, I just think there's a, there's a pretty big gap between what the social science shows on gender and what most organizations are actually doing. Um, it's great to see the Facebooks and Googles of the world really trying to make headway on this. Um, we've also seen, uh, I think, a growing number of consulting firms um, make gender a big priority in their people analytics work. So I know this is a big topic McKinsey is working on right now. Um, Mercer has a whole initiative about how to create a gender-balanced workforce uh, that's completely data-driven, and I think that's only going to grow in the next few years. Broadly, how about um, performance evaluations and compensation issues? How, what does uh, people analytics have to say about these issues more broadly? So, I mean, one we should be a little careful about. I realize we're saying people analytics this and people analytics this. I mean, it's 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 you know, it's not a terrifically well-defined space. It's mainly just bringing data where data hasn't been used in before. And in kind of a moneyball spirit, it's not taking conventional wisdom. It's that we're going to be evidence-based here, kind of regardless. So um, there, there, is, there is an intersection, though, with some fields like psychology and, and the biases that people bring. So one of the, one of the real motivating factors for, for us because of the worlds we come out of is we can actually improve decision making by using these tools. And performance evaluation is a classic example because there have been so many biases that show up in performance evaluation. So um, it, it's giving people analytics maybe too much credit because it's really just a vehicle to bring in some psychology we've known about for decades. But because we're being more rigorous and trying to and focusing more on how we can improve this process, um, we're able to ferret out some of those biases. So um, in, in many, many, di many different ways. So um, trying to keep opinions, for example, independent. So you don't want people to judge. I don't want to judge Adam after having had, heard you judge Adam. We try to get the opinions independent like that. We want to judge as much as possible blind so we don't bring um, information about a person to the table that isn't relevant because we know for a fact from decades of research that if we know things about them, it's impossible for us to, to separate them. So I, I think people on Luxus just kind of help that cause. We can't give them too much credit because we've kind of known it, but um, it's been a great vehicle to, to ride. And I think um, Kate actually just touched on something that brings us full circle, which is we, we talked about the important role Google has played in, in really stimulating interest in this field. But I think Moneyball and the way that, that sports analytics has, has taken off was probably the other catalyst. And, and Cade was on the, the front lines of that at least what, over a decade ago before I even knew it existed. Yeah, we, we sport, the sports, professional sports has been ahead of um, almost the entire non-sports world in using these tools because their whole existence is the performance of these individuals. And they've got better data. Um, they can see inputs precisely. They can see outputs precisely. And so you can, you can often look at what's going on in sports around analytics now and know that 10 years from now those tools are going to trickle down. And even just the rigor and the scientific orientation of the people who use the numbers are better, but literally because the guys who crunched numbers for baseball um, 20 years ago were figuring things out. So Google has come up uh, a couple of times in this conversation. Are there any other companies uh, or organizations in, uh, uh, that, that uh, you have been impressed by the work they're doing in this area and what other companies can learn from their experience? 
Um, well, we, as soon as we open that box, we've got a, lot, a long list to go down. Um, you know, across industries, and, and Adam has been very active lately with a lot of these firms, but I want to start out by saying there have been some firms who have focused on this for a long time. So like Deloitte & Touche has had an analytics, a workforce analytics practice for a long time. Um, some of the new folks in, uh, in the financial services have been, Goldman Sachs has take, undertaken a big initiative over the last couple of years. Um, Credit, Credit Suisse has been very interested with some full-time people. But it, now it's gotten, now we have to like really talk about everybody. Johnson & Johnson is involved. Adam's got a longer list, I'm sure. No, I'll, I'll just add a few you know, from, from other industries. Um, Teach for America, particularly on their, their selection, uh, or what they call admissions um, domain. I mean, they, they've been tracking for years. What do they need to assess in the hiring process to figure out who's going to be a star teacher and who's going to stick with us? Um, JetBlue has actually made a lot of headway in this area as well. Um, they're doing work in several different domains. One of my favorites is recognition. So how do you actually build a science of, of recognition so that you know when it's important to give people a sense of gratitude and appreciation? Um, do you make recognition public? Do you make it individual? Um, there are all sorts of questions that the managers have, have basically answered on intuition for years that now you know, the airline industry, when there's so many customer appreciation events that happen every day, um, is really sort of opening our eyes to how do you do this more effectively? The Teach for America uh, is such a great example because you, you know, as we're talking about Google and Goldman, you wouldn't think necessarily to go to the not-for-profit world, but they are the best we know on the hiring. I think I, I was just talking about this at lunch, actually, that if, if I could name one firm that knows the most about their hiring practices, it'd be those guys. Now, they're kind of ideally suited for it because they see 50 or 60,000 applications for kind of the same job, and so it's this perfect stream to get good at. But we have learned, I can tell you, the Wharton um, MBA admissions group has learned and improved their processes because of the way Teach for America hires people. Absolutely. They've, they've got a lot to teach a lot of people. So what's the secret ingredient of how do you, how do you choose the best people to hire? You, you, know, you know what it is? To recognize that you're never right and that you're never going to be done. Those are the two things. It's unbelievable what Teach for America does. They say, they say you know, we say all the time, we're never going to be done. This is not a one-time project. It's not a one-year project. We're never going to be done. And the other thing they say, which is amazing, is they say, you know, these are our metrics. These are our objectives. We know they're not right. We know they're wrong. And that leads to an, a, a continuous conversation about, okay, how can we refine them? What exactly, in what way are they wrong? And how can we, how can we tweak them? But they say, we know, we know we're wrong. That kind of humility is a great um, counterbalance to analytics. Because you can get pretty, uh, pretty confident about your model. You can get kind of in love with your model. You need the humility that says, we're wrong, we know we're wrong. Humility is a good thing overall. <laughs> it, it is, and I, I think actually it's, it's part of the founding of, of the evidence-based management field that I think people analytics probably uh, belongs to. Um, Jeff Pfeffer and Bob Sutton have, have long said that if you want to do analytics right, you need an attitude of wisdom, which is, in their definition, basically the willingness to act on the best information you have while constantly doubting what you know. And it's, it's easy, as Cade points out, to lose sight of, of the doubt part. Um, I would say, though, there's, there's one other thing from the hiring um, perspective that, that's been very eye-opening to me, which is uh, there are a bunch of data by Rick Jacobs and his colleagues suggesting that the cost of a bad hire are usually about triple the benefits of a good hire. And I think a lot of selection is actually more about screening out um, than it is screening in. Um, you're always going to have um, you know, false positives and false negatives. Um, but it's, it's much more risky to, to bring in somebody that then you have to go and replace or do a bunch of cultural damage repair. Um, and that's, I think, where probably you want to put more of the emphasis. Now, as If I were to sort of switch gears and turn to the two of you as researchers, 
Uh, what are some of the big questions that you are trying to answer and what has surprised you most about what you've learned so far? Um, one of the things that I'm working on right now is how to, is exactly on this stuff, is how to get people to be more open to um, analytics. So explicitly, so in some, in some task, we need to forecast what's going to happen, whether it's a market or a price or the performance of an employee. And you might have some algorithm, and you might have a good algorithm. And in most cases, you need to blend that algorithm with some expert judgment. It's not person or computer. It's best if you can blend these things. And yet, people are reluctant to take input from computers, especially the more expert you are in the field, the more like, you know, no, I need to use my, you know, my head as opposed to that. So we're trying to understand the psychology about what, what leads people to resist those um, inputs and what can we do to help break that down. One of the things that, that I've gotten increasingly interested in is um, the, the problem of, of collaboration creep, so to speak, where we're constantly having to go to meetings and answer emails, and there's just massive explosion in interdependence, and nobody knows how to handle it. Everybody thinks collaboration is great, uh, but everybody is overwhelmed with the amount of collaboration that they do. Um, so I'm working on a project with uh, Rob Cross and Reb Rebelly right now that, that looks at uh, the following question. If you do a network analysis of an organization, and you ask people, who do you depend on uh, for critical knowledge and advice and expertise? Um, what Rob finds is there's a, a certain number of people that can write your name down. Um, and after that number, you're at serious risk for burnout and overload. And I think that, of course, the, the unanswered question is exactly where does that number fall? Um, but it, it turns out to actually be quite deadly uh, to have everyone depending upon you for expertise. Um, and I'm interested in how do you redistribute um, you know, the help, um, the insight, the connections, uh, so that it's not all bottlenecked in one or two people. Right. That's, that's really interesting. And one final question. If you were to look at people analytics and the state of knowledge of the field today, where are the biggest knowledge gaps and, and what should be done to fill them? Um, this, I would say in, 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 in being effective, not just running better numbers, but actually making change in organizations. So it's, it's one thing to have a fancy regression model or to really have some insight numerically. It's a very different thing to actually translate that into action. And um, I, it kind of doesn't matter how good your model is until you get good at that translation. And um, it's kind of natural that's going to come later. But right now, everyone's enamored with the models and the data and the analysis. And it's not going to matter unless they can actually persuade and change an organization. I, I think, from my perspective, the probably the biggest unanswered question for people analytics uh, is what Cade's working on right now, which is, why don't more organizations do this? And how can you get senior leaders to realize that just because sometimes you know, these, these variables are hard to measure doesn't mean you shouldn't bring better science to them. And what does it take to, to open the minds of leaders to, to recognizing that if we had more data, it won't replace our jobs. It will actually give us the tools we need to make better judgments. Great. Okay, Adam, thanks so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton, and good luck with the conference. Thank you. Appreciate thanks. it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.